Five minutes past the hour. It's Thursday on the morning show with Preston Scott. Good morning. Program 3568. Over there in Studio 1A, David Allen, Ryan Carter is taking the day off. Huh. How about that? More on that later. I'm Preston Scott. Big stories in the press box. They are a plenty. Are you buying uh, Florida Senator Frank and Artilli's story? Okay, I don't know if it's an offense that deserves resignation. I, I don't know. Uh, I know this, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The stuff that comes out of your out of your mouth is what's lying inside of you. And uh, the senator just used some remarkably vulgar terms and words while talking about colleagues. And he did it talking to colleagues. Now, there's two sides to this story in my world. One is, I think he should hold himself to a higher standard than that. Should he resign? That's, you know, I I think that we need to expect better of our elected officials. Um, and I think what he said was abhorrent. I also think that the the Democrat Black Caucus of of state lawmakers ought to ought to get real because the likelihood is that inside their meetings they use the same terminology routinely. And I think if it's bad, it's bad. And I think it is bad. I think it is vulgar. Uh, Artillies use the N word. Um, try to do it in a slang way and somehow excuse that. You heard him in the news, perhaps. Maybe you've not seen the, or heard the news. Um, but I'll tell you what, State Senator Audrey Gibson, what a class act. She was the recipient of uh, much of the vulgarity and her reaction, and I quote, there should be no grudges and reason to talk terribly to or about anyone. I'm ready to move past it so we can do the work. Good on you. Good on you, young lady. Well done. But uh, I, I think we need to expect more. I think I think there needs to be some heartfelt, thoughtful discussion um, about Mr. Artilli's continuing in the Senate. Uh, Fox News dropping Bill O'Reilly. <clears throat> now, this just in. O'Reilly's attorney says it's a smear campaign. Rumors about Bill... Uh, conducting himself inappropriately with female staff members has been this old news. I mean, honestly, I don't know whether it happened or not. Neither do you. Here's what I can tell you. Bill O'Reilly's been a boorish human being for a very long time. Uh, he's a bully. He's mean-spirited. He's vindictive. And, um, I mean, there there's a classic video clip of him losing his cool on a set years ago. And and there's no indication he's any different now than he was then. That's when he was doing hard copy. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, you know the video clip I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh my I'll, gosh. I'll do it live! He's just, he's just. I'll do it live! He's out of control. Out of control. Um, I've never been a fan of Big, Bill O'Reilly. I've never watched one of his entire shows. Um, that just, not my cup of tea. I'm really disappointed that they're moving the five to nine. That's confusing. Yeah, the the, the program the, the five, five which nine. is really good. It's really good. You you like to watch that? 
It's a really good program. And that, it, that's past I, your bedtime. It in uh, and Brett Bear's special report are the two best shows on Fox, and there's it's not even close. But Tucker Carlson is really good too, and so they moved Tucker. I'm guessing to the eight o'clock slot, and now the five will be at the five at nine. Is going to be the show. What do they do at five? I don't know. Don't know. We're just getting started. The, the, the stories today are as interesting as they are diverse. It's 10 minutes past the hour. It is the morning show with Preston Scott. iHeartRadio is the easy to use app for music and radio. Download the free iHeartRadio app today. Just about 11 minutes past the hour. It is Thursday, April 20th. On this date in history, in 1841, Edgar Allan Poe publishes The Murders in the Rue Morgue. His uh, first detective stories. This is interesting to me. I just started listening to the movie Gods and Generals. You just said listening to the movie. Yeah, when I'm driving, I've got movies on my DVD player in the in the uh, in the car, and I'm listening as I'm driving because I've seen the movies, and you know, it, it's it's form of entertainment for me. There's nothing on the radio beyond me and our radio station that I really enjoy, and so. I can't listen to my. I can't listen to myself. Okay, that makes me feel a little bit better. It was, you know, I sounding can't, a little egotistical there. Well, for of course a it is. You have to have a little bit of ego to do what we do. Come on, you know that. That's true. I think I'm the best. <laughs> Whereas I know I. I'm just. I'm kidding. Anybody who's listened to this show for years knows I apologize for being me all the time. There are people that are much much better at what I do. Um, but this was just the, how how odd. I I'm listening to Gods and Generals, which is the prequel to Gettysburg. Okay, I'm in this Civil War thing right now. I'm just I don't know what it is. I'm reading and I'm looking at stuff. And as I'm coming into the studio, Robert Duvall, who's playing Robert E. Lee in the movie, does not accept the appointment to lead the United States Army believing that he would be leading forces to invade his homeland, Virginia. It was on this date in 1861, Robert E. Lee resigns his command in the U.S. Army. How weird is that? It happened. And I was just... I was just <laughs> it happened. I was just there. I was just there, exactly. That's crazy. Uh, in 1912 on this date, Fenway Park opened up, home of the Boston Red Sox. In 1940, RCA demonstrates the first U.S. electron microscope capable of magnifying 100,000 times. Sadly, it was on this date in 1999, Columbine happened. And it was on this date in 2010, Deepwater Horizon happened. Interesting. Probably forgot about that. I mean, I would never have connected it to the date. No, I'm not much of a date person to begin with. 
We'll leave that right there. Yeah. Yeah. I just posted my girlfriend. I, <laughs> I just posted on the blog page a um I think it's it's that it's imagery that is fascinating and at the same time it's kind of eerie and creepy. Um 2014-2014 JO25. It's the asteroid that is now visible with small telescopes. You can if you if you have a clear view um you can you can see it with a telescope. It's going to make a uh, an approach within about a million miles of Earth, which is relatively close. We're in no danger. And uh this thing's huge. And if you look at the images that have been laced together by NASA to form kind of a video, it's a little eerie. You see this thing tumbling, and it's this—it's about a half mile by a half wa- half mile wide. Kind of Armageddon-ish. It's big, and it has two distinct spheres. Uh-oh. More like Deep Impact on that one. <laughs> You're a Deep Impact guy. I think it's a better movie than uh, than Armageddon. I just do. Yeah, that's why Deep Impact gets played like every day on TV. It's a better movie. It's a better cast. Look, Armageddon had Ben Affleck in it. Come on. <laughs> that look he gets. <laughs> I can't argue with you about that one. But the video of this, the images, is just, its again, it's fascinating and creepy at the same time. Because it's just spinning out there in space silently turning over and over. How do you know it's silent? It could be talking to itself. It could be, but I don't think it is. I don't think it's neurotic. It's an asteroid. 16 minutes past the hour. Thing your mom would say you should do because everyone else is doing it. You're listening to The Morning Show with Preston Scott on News Radio 100.7 WFLA. Twenty-one minutes past the hour. If you're just waking up with us, good morning. Thanks very much for making us part of your day, wherever, however you are listening. Republican Senator Frank Artilles in trouble over uh, some racial slurs he used in a heated dialogue with colleagues. Um, hey, look, I basically apologized. That's what <laughs> I basically apologized. Yeah, um, Democrat State Senator Audrey Gibson taking the high road. Really appreciate her conduct in all of this. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very disappointed in Artilles. Um I have people writing me saying the voters will decide if he should keep his job. He's out. I'll just tell him right now, he's done. He's not going to be reelected. You mark my words, he will lose. Um, if he doesn't step down in the meantime. Bill O'Reilly out at Fox uh, Harvard researchers confirming what we've said months and months, if not, well, years ago, we talked about the subject of, of in four years, the subject of um, minimum wage increases and the damage to the economy. Harvard research now proves it. Uh, in the restaurant business, which has been the focus of it, 10% increase in the minimum wage leads to a 24% increase in the likelihood a restaurant goes out of business. 
And it's, we're just scratching the surface on that one. Um, Aaron Hernandez. Isn't it interesting that his death basically opens the door for his conviction to be thrown out? It's called abatement. Because his original conviction, he had appealed it as a formality, uh, just just as a matter of process. Because he's now dead, the conviction is in essence thrown out. It's as if it never happened. My wife and I had a discussion about that. She said it really doesn't matter. He's dead. No one wins in this. I think it matters that his record his record is expunged for the sake of the family of the victim, but that's just me. But um, it's that's just kind of CNN calls it quirky. I agree. Uh, Jeb Bush, Derek Jeter, bidding against a group led by Tag Romney, Mitt Romney's son, to own the Miami Marlins. Jeb wants to own a baseball team like his brother did. It's <laughs> interesting. Here's my favorite, though. And we'll talk more about this in a little bit. Event planning checklist. I hold in my hands, I'm showing to David, the event planning checklist from the Berkeley Police Department from the website. Okay? It is verified. And and hold on now. Here's on the checklist. Contact the police department and provide, do you want symbolic arrests? If so, where and when? I have this image of Berkeley police who, by the way, let people get beat up last week, who routinely are not standing up against rioters, protesters that are violent and destructive. I have this imagery of them arresting people, taking them around the corner to the McDonald's and, you know, having a burger with them. Okay, guys, you can get out now. Symbolic arrests, where and when. What's happening at Berkeley ought to concern every single person listening to this broadcast. Why is that? Because it is... It is dangerous it is a gross violation of the law the protests in masks there are laws against that can't do it you're not allowed to shield your identity so you're afraid it's going to spread to more of the country and uh, other police forces will just turn a blind eye it's going to get ugly and i'll tell you why because ann coulter's going to berkeley and she's going to berkeley She's not going to, they are doing everything possible, the campus, the university leaders, to, to not allow her to speak there. They're making it brutally difficult for her. And she announced on Tucker Carlson last night, she's going. I'm going to follow their rules, but I'm going. I am going to speak. She said the First Amendment is at stake, and I will not be bullied into silence. Good for her. Now, I don't agree with Ann's methods all the time. Or her rhetoric all the time. Her general point of view, I agree completely. And boy, didn't she call Donald Trump. She was the one that predicted Donald Trump would win when it was a field of 17. And everyone laughed at her. Because she was reading something in America that most everybody else missed. But what's happening at Berkeley, and you'll hear more of that in just a few moments is alarming 
And the fact that the university tolerates it, that the state legislature tolerates it, that law enforcement tolerates it, should be of great concern to us all. It's 27 minutes past the hour. We're just getting started on Thursday on The Morning Show with Preston Scott. Ooh, a shot to win a thousand bucks? Hey, it's dollar dollar bill. Your shot in less than 30 minutes on WFLA. Thirty-five minutes past the hour. Good morning. If you are just rolling out of the rack, welcome to the morning show. Next hour, Jeremy Mutz will join me. Episode four, talking about the Sims family murders. One of the unsolved cases that um, really probably deserves to be reopened. It is. Um, I, I I hesitate to call it a cold case because in the last year they've done DNA testing. And we don't know the results of any of that yet. But uh, but anyway, episode four this morning. Can I say quickly, I've had more people pull me aside and say, when's the next episode? Where can I find? They're, people are genuinely, people that I w- wouldn't normally hear from have said to me, ooh, when's the next one? Or where can I find the other ones? Uh, Oh, and remind everybody what we've got set up for them if they've missed previous episodes. Well, it's uh, it's on our uh, on our <laughs> easy for me to say podcast page website podcast page, and uh, that's WFLA. Thank you, Don Pardo. <laughs> good, good thing I've never tried to be an announcer. <laughs> I'm, I'm a professional. Do not try this at home. <laughs> WFLAFM.com. It's under the audio tab. So tell them, Dave. <laughs> where can they find more? <laughs> Darn if I know. <laughs> I'm just the program director. <laughs> what are you asking me for? All right. Big stories in the press box. Is it enough that Frank Artilles, the state senator, has apologized? What else needs to happen? He used very inappropriate language, racial slurs, when talking to and about colleagues. And, I mean, it, it's he didn't commit a crime. He used tacky language, tasteless language. Now, I'll be the first one to tell you, I you know, what what is rumbling around inside your heart usually comes out your mouth. If you have a profane mouth, you have profanities stuck in your heart. You know, you've got... That just is what it is. Um, someone a lot smarter than I once wrote, out of out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But um, I, I also find a degree of hypocrisy here. First, let me let me lodge Senator Audrey Gibson. She's just classy, Democrat senator from uh, I want to say northeast of Jacksonville. Um. She's, or maybe it is Jacksonville, I'm not sure. She's She's been high class, high road all the way. She did not join the uh, the Florida Legislative Black Caucus, who voted unanimously to file a complaint seeking Artilly's removal from the Senate. If, if I may, let me just throw this out there. If any of the members of uh, of the Black Caucus of state lawmakers 
If you have never, ever used the slang version of the N-word when talking to one another or about one another or about anyone, okay, file away. File your paperwork. I just don't believe that. And that's the hypocrisy side of this that drives me nuts. Now, Artilles has disgraced himself, and the voters will have the final say eventually. I think he's done. Bill O'Reilly's done at Fox. Harvard study concludes the increase in the minimum wage does, in fact, destroy the restaurant industry. Aaron Hernandez's suicide had an interesting effect on his legal conviction. It's abated, meaning legally it never happened. Former Governor Jeb Bush joining with Derek Jeter trying to buy the uh, Miami Marlins. A little bidding war. And then there's Berkeley. More on that in a moment on The Morning Show. Everything you need, truth and entertainment. The Morning Show with Preston Scott on News Radio 100.7 WFLA. Preston Scott in your ears for the 3,568th occasion. Over there is David, uh, uh, David, uh, uh, where's that tab? Allen. At David Allen on air for Twitter followers. At David Allen on air. Is that what it is? Yeah. Good for you. We got like nine followers now. Berkeley police. (laughs) That I should brag about. You and Ryan. Just keep my mouth shut. The race to 20. <laughs> oh, he's got like 205, but that's that's because he has college friends. Okay. I have no friends. Uh Berkeley Police Department really in the spotlight for standing down during violence last week when anarchists, violent, vicious, foul-mouthed, mean-spirited, masked, illegally demonstrating college students and professional protesters showed up at a Trump rally. And fights broke out. Didn't we, correct me if I'm wrong, David, didn't we say at some point during the campaign when Trump protesters were routinely being ridiculed and and pushed and shoved and spit on and cursed at that eventually they'd run into a group that would have had enough? Right. Yes, absolutely. Well, it happened last week and they got their butt whipped. And, and as a result, on Reddit, a conversation followed. Yes, it's, and these are, these are the protesters. Yes, we seem to have lost today. The alt-right held their ground. Listen to this. This is like, this is surreal. If we want to take action <clears throat> against them, we need to be better organized and better trained. It doesn't help that it's only the far left opposing them. Any Trump supporter can be radicalized far easier than any liberal. I hope we learn from today. Another post. A shocking number of our comrades went in there with absolute no combat training. Excuse me? We need to set up seminars or something of the sort. Another post. We also need better equipment. I know the bandana and hoodie look is our trademark. But I saw the right wearing motorcycle helmets and baseball helmets. A dude wearing a helmet is going to keep going if he gets punched. Our guys are going down. Do you notice that? The, the presupposition is we're going to commit violence 
But these guys are protecting themselves, so we've got to do more. They're not going down if they get punched. So now things need to escalate because of that. I'm not done. I honestly think we need a campaign to get more Antifa armed. Antifa means anti-fascist. That's the name of their group. They think that anyone that supports the president and uh, the Constitution is a fascist. It seems that we that that it seems to be the biggest problem with our resistance. They're mostly armed. Why aren't we? Not getting disarmed is a big part of the problem. Yes, but we need more than flags and bats. We need to take notes from the John Brown Gun Club and get firearms and training. This is now going around, folks. This is why I said you better be concerned with what's happening at Berkeley. Quote, I know getting firearms in states and cities we have a presence in is usually a hassle, but even handguns would help. It would certainly put a psychological element in, in while holding flat fash back, referring to fascists. Who do you think a fascist is more afraid of? People with flags and bats or people with flags, bats, and guns? Meanwhile, Berkeley police stand down and do nothing. And the campus leaders, the presidents, the the uh, the regents do nothing. They are breaking the law by how they are assembling. And nothing is being done. This is setting up to be very, very ugly. Ann Coulter came on Tucker Carlson's program last night on Fox to announce she is going to speak at Berkeley. She will not be intimidated. She is going there and she will talk. Pay attention to this story. It's 46 minutes past the hour. It's the morning show with Preston Scott. Shot at a thousand bucks. Coming up next. On News Radio 100.7 WFLA. Fifty-one minutes past the hour. Thursday on the morning show. Sims Family Murders episode four. In just about twenty minutes. Third hour of the show, Eric Weinmeyer. NoBarriersUSA.org is the website. He is an adventurer who has accomplished some of the most amazing things ever. And he happens to be blind. Bill Zimfer will join us in the third hour of the program. Joe Gomez will join us in just a few minutes. So we've got a busy and Dr. Steve Stevenson, our pause for thought segment this morning on the morning show didn't realize i was gonna have to work today how about that david allen in today ryan carter not maybe there's a reason why ryan's not here maybe maybe not we'll see we'll see what are you getting to well we'll see what are you getting at we'll see uh i want to just do a little follow-up berkeley listen to this just got some sound here it, this is going to be a, a face-off because Berkeley has canceled Ann Coulter's appearance. They have told college Republicans you're not allowed to have her. Um, this is amazing. 
what the Vice Chancellor of Public Affairs, Dan Mogloff, said. Our commitment to the First Amendment is unshaken and remains exactly the same. But at the same time, our commitment to our students' safety and well-being is also unshaken. And why would that be, Dan? Why would the safety and well-being of students be an issue at a speech? Because at Berkeley and several other colleges in America, if the speech happens to come from the other side, the violence is provoked by the left, by the students, the little snowflakes that you claim you're trying to protect. They're the ones inflicting the damage. The answer for this is to arrest and place in jail students that break the law. This happens here in the capital city of Florida when protesters show up at events and at the whim of their desires to block traffic and they're not arrested. They don't have a permit. They're just blocking traffic. They're laying down on the roads. It happens here. What's happening in California, far more violent. Both are wrong. Both are breaking the law. At Berkeley, they should be ashamed of themselves. The state lawmakers should be ashamed of themselves. They should be telling the Berkeley chancellors and the president, do you want to remain in office? Do you want to keep your job? Because funding's gone tomorrow if you don't stop this. Period. Let the little snowflakes rebel. So be it. Get out of school. You no longer have a right to be there. You are expelled as a student. You expel a few students that break the law repeatedly. Problem solved. Trust me, problem will be solved. This is frightening what's happening. That he can say... Our commitment to the First Amendment is unshaken. No, it's not. That's a lie. That is an outright 100% lie. No, it isn't. Your commitment to the free speech of people that agree with you politically is unshaken. Your commitment to protect the free speech of people that are breaking the law by showing up and protesting in masks and violently attacking other people that disagree with them, that's unwavering, your protection of them. But let's finish. And remains exactly the same. But at the same time, our commitment to our students' safety and well-being is also unshaken. Okay, why would your students, why would students inside the campus be in a situation that's unsafe if it not if it were not for the fact that you weren't providing for their safety who are they being who are they threatened by other students that you won't rein in if if we head to another civil war in this country it's not going to be because conservatives and people on the right are looking for a fight it's because they defend themselves this is getting out of hand 
We've got news, big stories in the press box, and more. The Morning Show with Preston Scott. Five minutes past the hour. Hour number two of the morning show with Preston Scott, Thursday, April 20th. Good morning. Thank you very much for inviting us into your life for just a little while today. We thank you, as always, no matter where or how you listen. David Allen over there. Ryan Carter has the day off. And uh, I, I did not make this a big story in the press box because I wanted to leave it to experts to talk about this story. And so joining me from Washington is Joe Gomez. Joe, I I heard about 420 day and I, I just, I looked at the person that said it to me and I was just sort of blinking. What's, 4, <laughs> what's 420 day? Well, 420 day is a day when uh, marijuana enthusiasts uh, come out and, uh, and, and together in and, and full form and, and basically perform different acts of civil disobedience. I can tell you, uh, you know, based on firsthand knowledge, having gone to the University of Colorado in Boulder, uh, that, uh, you know, in Colorado, they take that very, this day very seriously. I mean, you could see massive stacks of smoke uh, emanating, uh, rising from the city. And uh, I know in, in Colorado now where marijuana is legal, I mean, you can see photographs from past 420 days where it's just like clouds of smoke surrounding um, the capital. So it's uh, it's a day that uh, that if, if you if you are, can smoke marijuana legally and you're in a state where you can do that, uh, I think that uh, marijuana enthusiasts uh, really enjoy going out there and, uh, and and partaking in their favorite hobby. When did this start? You know, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I think it started probably at some point in the '70s. You know, it, it has a, a kind of a a, a jumbled type of history, uh, you know, did it start with uh, with uh, some sort of a police code for 420? That seems to be more of an urban legend. Or was it actually just a couple of teenagers in high school that decided at 420 they were going to get stoned? And so that's how it became, you know, an instrument of pop culture. I think that there's, you know, the jury was still out on that one. But it did, it did start at some point in the 70s, and then it just kind of continued on. And now... You know, you have like 26 states and the District of Columbia where marijuana is legalized in some way, shape, or form. And so now we have new meaning to the term "mile high city" right. with regard <laughs> with regard to Denver. Um, so where are we legislatively here? It's it's sort of one of those weird paradoxes where the federal government hasn't budged on the issue, but states have. Right. I mean, so it's still illegal on the federal level, um, but on the state level, you know, it's up to the state legislature what to do with this. And and some of these uh, ballot measures to legalize marijuana were some of the most popular measures uh, in the past election. Uh, most recently, you know, Massachusetts, uh, Maine, Nevada, all passed measures legalizing recreational uh, marijuana use. And um, and I think that you know it's it, it's kind of a growing. Uh, trend that we're seeing across the uh, across the country. Now that's it. Oh, that's <laughs> funny, Joe. That's funny. It's a growing trend. <laughs> well, it's gr- it's a growing trend, and celebrations <laughs> are ready to roll. Oh, oh, you know, oh! Pro- you were <laughs> jotting that down on the napkin Courting last stuff. night, didn't you? 
I know it's corny stuff. But jo- Joe, is there at what point will people start to include in the discussion and the debate on this? And I mean, you can tell from my tone, I'm I'm just not there with this stuff. But whatever. Um, I, I, the fact that today's marijuana plant is not your dad's marijuana plant from back in the '70s. It's a very different, potent plant. Well, yeah. I mean, it, I think that uh, you know. With the, with the evolution of all of this, science has evolved as well. And so you're right. I mean, it's, it's a lot stronger than it used to be. And, uh, I think that there's some concern that if you legalize it, it could really become kind of a gateway drug. And on the, on the opposite side, people are saying that if you legalize it, then the drug cartels would, that would take away a big part of their trade. You know, marijuana is a big part of their trade, getting that into the United States and selling it. Yeah, see, I just think that's a fool's argument because uh, the black market's going to still exist because states and uh, governments tax it, and the black market's going to sell it for less, and uh, it'll continue. But uh, anyway, Joe, always fun to have you. Thank you. Thanks. All right, Joe Gomez this morning. That's going to be it. I'm not talking about this story anymore, but it was was important enough that uh, they offered up Joe to talk about it. So there you go, 10 minutes past the hour. Use app for music and radio. Download the free iHeartRadio app today. October 1966. Three members of the Sims family were murdered. The case has never been solved. This is the story. 11 minutes past the hour. Episode 4, The Sims Family Murders. We are joined, as always, by former state prosecutor Jeremy Mutz. When we left off, we were talking about the crime scene. And to remind those of you that might have missed, all of the previous segments are available on the website, on my blog page, and on the WFLAFM.com website. We have a podcast page set up. Jeremy, let's talk about the crime scene. What evidence existed? 12 years old, they slugged her in the face. Uh, She struggled. She had bloody handprints between her legs. Her inner thighs had bruises. Her knee had bruises where she struggled. And it showed that she was the target. She was stabbed three times in the lower abdomen, and then they pulled up her shirt, stabbed her three times in the heart. And that really shows that the killer was a, a picor, somebody that derives the sexual satisfaction from the act of stabbing. Um, Dr. Sims, Mrs. Sims, had not been struck, but Joy was, and I think that's very significant. Mrs. Sims' clothing had not even been disheveled. So this was a sick, twisted person that did that, and they've gone free all these years, but I think the evidence shows she was the target. Other significant things that really stand out are the blindfolds and the bindings that were used. And they're frighteningly sophisticated how they did it. They used neckties, women's nylon stockings, and slips, simple things, everything that was found in the home, but pretty sophisticated in the way they did it and the way the gags and blindfolds were put together. Explain what you mean by sophisticated. Well, it wasn't like you know, a kid messing around and just tying somebody up or a kid messing around and doing a blindfold. They actually used ties that went under the chin and around the mouth to hold the gag in place. 
and the gags were stuffed in so far that it was close to choking um, the victims just just from the gags. And it's you kind of try to think about how, where did they get these ideas to do this, and a couple of things stand out to me because there was a movie in 1946 called The Killers where the killers broke into a restaurant and used towels and things and did the same kind of gags, looked very much the same. And they used what they found in the home. Um, the Bricka murders in Cincinnati in September 66, they used socks and tape. And that would have been something that the killers in this case would have certainly read about and heard about. But they obviously thought this out. They went right to the drawer where the slips and the things were. They went right to the closet where the ties were hanging. The dresser had not been rifled through. I think it shows that they had been in that house before. They knew where things were. I think those are all significant things. Um, as Larry Campbell said, you know, Mr. Sims was no milk toast. That was, that was Larry Campbell's words. He was a big man. He was a coach. Uh, Mrs. Sims was also five foot eight. If they wanted to fight. The killers would have had some problems, but there was no signs of a struggle. And I think that's why it shows two people came in, subdued them. Were there fingerprints found at the scene, Jeremy? About a thousand fingerprints, and it took about 12 hours to process the scene. Um, and those prints have been used to clear some suspects, but also turned out to be a lot of law enforcement prints. And uh, actually, a palm print found on Mr. Sims's car turned out to be. Sheriff Joyce, I guess, had leaned over and touched the hood of the car. So there was, there was some of that. Jeremy, stand by. Jeremy Mutz with me. Former state prosecutor who has seen what evidence exists, at least that we know of. There's some that we're not sure of. We're going to continue our discussion. The crime scene, the Sims family murders, October 22nd, 1966. Three members of the family died that night. It's the morning show with Preston Scott this without caffeine the morning show with preston scott on news radio 100.7 wfla continuing our discussion on the sims family murders joining me former state prosecutor jeremy mutz jeremy we're at the crime scene right now just quickly when the ambulance arrived when law enforcement arrived who was still alive who was deceased and Joy Sims had already passed. So they very quickly got Mrs. Sims on a stretcher and into the ambulance and on her way to the hospital. When they came back inside the house, Mr. Sims had expired. Jeremy, as a former prosecutor, I can only imagine that this is not necessarily unusual, that when you have victims that are still alive, the crime scene by necessity is compromised to a certain extent. Is that an accurate statement? Although I don't think it was to any significant degree in this case because they didn't move Dr. Sims at all, and they didn't move him at all before they took pictures in the crime scene. Mrs. Sims, there was really no sign that she was assaulted or struck or anything like that where you'd think there might be DNA or anything like that. So even with what they knew about crime scenes and so forth at that time, I don't think she was... I don't think it compromised the scene by the by her removing, being but, removed from the scene. 
but yet there were fingerprints of many of the law enforcement officers that had been in and out of the room. Certainly that didn't help. That did not. And I think what happened after they removed the body, after they removed um, Mrs. Sims, got her in the ambulance, things just kind of got out of control. And I don't know why, but a lot of people were allowed to just walk through that house and gawk and look. And I, and I think nothing like this had ever happened in Tallahassee before, and I think it was just shock and overwhelming, even for pretty experienced people in law enforcement. Um, Jack Dawkins was the chief of detectives, and he had been to the National Academy at the FBI, so he had training, he had experience, but I think just the magnitude of this got the best of of, of him and the sheriff, and they let a lot of people in. Now, the first responders, Mr. Beavis and his son, were pretty sensitive to the scene. They, the first CPD officer to get there, they said, you know, this is what we touched, this is what we did. They kept the scene pretty secure. Today, there'd be no question that this would be a TPD case, but at that time, the sheriff would take over any homicide within the county, within within the county. Um, once the sheriffs got there, um, they basically asked the police department to leave, and then, you know, really all hell broke loose. They let, you know, the sheriff's park posse and auxiliary units, anybody that wanted to come in there, walk through there. And this was 1966, and I think, you know, to be fair to Sheriff Joyce and the people that worked for him then, they really wanted to solve this. They put five or 6,000 hours into this case. They interviewed five or 6,000 people. They brought some of the best people in the state or even the country with the Florida Sheriff's Bureau to help with the case. But things got out of hand that night. And I think that's always one of the big frustrations in this case is if they had let TPD work with them closely and not make it a, a turf issue, you know, they may have solved it back in 66. Of course, we saw the same thing happen in 2016 where some of the same mentality that the sheriff should be in charge and, you know, kind of the, you know, the ego get, gets the best of just a couple people. And, you know, instead of working together and solving it, you know, we get into this turf issue. Jeremy, let's talk for just a quick second, because we have just a moment or so left in this episode. The, the witness descriptions of a young man out walking away from the crime scene on Muriel Court, uh, gesturing wildly and so forth. What more do we know? Jeremy, as always, I appreciate the time. We will continue with Episode 5 next week. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me, Preston. Jeremy Mutz, former state prosecutor. He's seen the evidence. We'll talk about more evidence, more of what witnesses saw and heard.
next week in episode five, The Sims Family Murders. It's the morning show with Preston Scott. Want to win a thousand bucks? You're shot in less than 30 minutes on WFLA. Thirty-five minutes past the hour. Good morning. I'm debating, you know, as we do these episodes on the Sims Family Murders, the final episode will be on a Wednesday. We're going to do the final episode on Wednesday, June 21st. And I'm debating on making that episode a Q&A where we do an extended period of time with Jeremy to take your calls and questions. Thinking about that. If you have any thoughts, something you'd like me to, to cover with regard to this, or, or we might do that a couple weeks later uh, and revisit the, the case. Obviously, my effort here is I, I want to raise more attention to this and see if we can get the case opened. Uh, I think you'll find when we're, when we're done, there's reason to open this case. There's a way to solve this. I, I firmly believe that. So there's a reason why we're taking our time with these steps and being so methodical. Methodical, thank yeah. you, uh, about every episode. Yeah, I, I think it's important that you get a chance to hear, again, in segments, and we've pieced them together in one longer podcast, but you can listen to the individual segments as well on the blog page, I think it's important that you hear what exactly happened and what they know. I mean, right now, right now, I'll tell you, and I obviously I've looked through a lot of this long before this. Jeremy and I have been working on this for many, many months. When you hear the immediate contradictory stories of a young man, who said he was one place, but he was witnessed somewhere else. I mean, he was seen by multiple people. And that he tells investigators he was watching a movie, and that movie was not on television. And you've got to remember, there were no DVDs or VHSs. There were no at-home movies that you could watch. It's television. And what was on television is not what he said he was watching. You immediately, my mind immediately goes to the show 48 Hours. This guy has implicated himself by lying. And next week, we're going to find out more about this young man. But uh, any input, any thoughts, any feedback you want to give me, Preston at iHeartRadio.com. Always love to uh, to hear from you. Frank Artilles, for Florida State Senator, in some hot water for comments. They were inappropriate comments. They were vulgar. They were, they were rude. They were absolutely inappropriate, uh, directed at colleagues in the Senate and the Senate president. Here's a Republican using vulgar terms to describe the Senate president and is expressing his anger over the fact that the Senate president became the Senate president. Um, Frank Artilles is trying to excuse his his conduct as, uh, look, he was in the heat of a, of a discussion with colleagues. No, nah, it's tacky and coarse, and you need to be better than that. It's not appropriate. Now, is it worthy of him stepping down? Now that's for others to decide. Um, I, I commend State Senator Audrey Gibson, Democrat, who was the target of much of this. 
she has taken the high road. Well done. But um, I also take issue with the black legislative caucus inside the state legislature because uh, my my sense is that many of them use the same terminology amongst themselves and to feign, you know, as if they, they don't. It's just, I mean, I just... And if I'm wrong, so be it. But I... Their calls for his resignation don't resonate with me. Calls for this guy to be perhaps considered for removal from office, that's up to voters, but but what he did stands on its own as just embarrassing. He embarrassed himself. Bill O'Reilly out at Fox, Harvard Law, uh, Harvard study, not law school, Harvard study shows the uh, increase of minimum wages killing and destroying restaurants. Aaron Hernandez, by virtue of killing himself, basically eliminated his guilty verdict in that murder trial, which he was serving a life term for. Some of the big stories, 40 minutes past the hour. Five minutes and he'll give you something to talk about. The Morning Show with Preston Scott on News Radio 100.7 WFLA. Just about a half hour from now, adventurer Eric Weinmeyer will join me. NoBarriersUSA.org is the website. If you want to get a little advance on it, I think you'll uh, you'll like it. Time for pause for thoughts. Chance to talk about our pets. Joining me is Dr. Steve Steverson of the Bradfordville Animal Hospital. Dr. Steverson, how are you, sir? Hey, Preston. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm I'm anxious to solve a mystery that I've I've wrestled with for decades. Uh, whether okay. it's at pet stores or uh, or in someone's home, I see the little things growing of catnip at the <laughs> checkout lines. Yeah. And I have no idea what is catnip and why do cats need it or want it or I mean, talk to me. Yeah, yeah, Preston. Catnip is a um, it's a very common herb. It's uh, uh, it came over from Asia and Europe to the United States many, many, many years ago. It actually, grows as a weed in in our area of the country. Um, and uh, catnip has a, a volatile oil, like essential oils in it, that are very stimulatory to a cat. <laughs> So when a cat smells or sniffs or inhales that catnip, it excites neurons in their brain. Um, that's where all their activity comes from. Um, it's not a hallucinogen or anything like that in a cat. <laughs> <laughs> so um, most cats are sensitive to catnip, but not all of them. Um, when you say even, sensitive, what do you mean? In a good way or a bad way? In a good way. Some cats will see catnip and are kind of indifferent to it. It doesn't do anything for them. Probably a half or a little more than half of cats actually it's, um, are sensitive to it and are excited by it. Um, any cat, tigers, lions, cougars, as well as domestic cats can be sensitive to, to catnip. Um, it's, it's not habit-forming in cats. So in that regard, it's safe for you to give to your cat if your cat enjoys it. <laughs> so <laughs> that it, would you advise it? In other words, it, I mean, is it something that's beneficial? It, it certainly is a stimulation for them. So in that regard, it's good. Um, that excitement only lasts maybe 10 or 15 minutes at the most, and the effects of that catnip wears off. And it takes a couple hours maybe before, before the cat will be sensitive to catnip again. 
So it's not a continual stimulation for the cat. It only lasts a very short period of time. Preston, it's so, like 420 day for your cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know that um, in years gone by in uh, Asian cultures, catnip was used as a herbal tea for humans to treat for intestinal pain or colic in babies um, or insomnia or migraine headaches. So it has had some medicinal use in the past uh, in humans. It doesn't have anything like that for cats. It's just a stimulant for them. Let's talk about a common condition that I know a lot of dogs have to deal with this time of year, ear conditions. Um, mm-hmm. Ears, our dog's ears are, are remarkable things. <laughs> they are. They are, Preston. And, uh, you know, we very, very commonly see dogs and cats with ear problems. The canal, the ear canal in a dog or cat is about twice as long as a human's. And so there's that much more of that canal to allow infection or inflammation to get down in there. Um, it can take a little piece of a grass seed or a grass on to get down in there to start something or a little bit of moisture to create an infection. You know, you, um, you shared something with me, Dr. Steverson, in a note that I never had considered. Breeds of dogs that have ears that flop over, it can be more problematic for them, ear infections. Why? Most definitely, Preston. Uh, the theory is that it's because of the circulation of air uh, at the entrance to the ear canal. If the ears stand up, a lot more circulation. The air can move around down in the ear canal so they don't get so moist. Uh, ear, floppy-eared dogs, uh, the air is trapped in the ear. It doesn't circulate as well. Moisture builds up, and that promotes those infections and inflammation that we see in those ears. Real quickly, we've got about 15 seconds. What are the symptoms we should look for in our dogs? A head tilt, uh, scratching their ears, shaking their head, uh, whimpering or whining when they rub their ears. Those are the symptoms you look for. Dr. Steverson will pick up there next time. Thanks so much for the time today. Great. Thanks, Preston. Thank you, Dr. Steve Steverson with the Bradfordville Animal Clinic, Animal Hospital, our resident expert on dogs and cats. It's the morning show with Preston Scott, 46 minutes past the hour. Fast-moving Thursday on the morning show with Preston Scott. It is April the 20th, program 3568. You know what that means, don't you? We're just months away from Christmas. Christmas season, baby. How dare you? Holiday season coming up soon. Before you know it, tinsel. How dare you? Ornaments. Christmas cards. As if life wasn't stressful enough, now you got to throw that in on top of it? Red and white and green coming back into the stores before you know it. Yes. Skip right over Halloween and Thanksgiving. No, no. Thanksgiving ushers it all in. Thanksgiving is is just the most uncluttered holiday of them all. I'm just saying we're getting close. I don't need the stress of Christmas we're, shopping. We're at getting this close. Point. We are getting close. Thanks, Chris. K Kringle, buddy. That's me. K. Kringle. Hour number three of the program, though. Eric Weinmeyer in just a couple moments here on the program. Bill's in for at the bottom of the hour. President's foreign challenges. Uh, I, I would call it cleaning up the mess. That's what I would call it. it. There's no coincidence that we have all these issues around the world right now. Uh, aside from those of you that are isolationists, uh, the, the reality is that uh, th- there are responsibilities that uh, that the United States bears with making these relationships better. And I think Reagan had it right. 
Reagan had it right. The, the best way to maintain a good relationship is to be strong defensively. And there's no coincidence to the fact that we are weakened diplomatically in almost every foreign relationship we have because of what's happened over the last eight years. No doubt in my mind. Anyway, we'll get to all that at the bottom of the hour. Um, big stories in the press box. Florida State Senator Frank Artilles. Uh, interesting. He is in the national news because of the language he used. This was a story on national websites because he used vulgar um, base course language when talking to and about colleagues in the Florida Senate, including fellow Republicans. It doesn't excuse it. Well, it's okay if he says it about Democrats. No, no, it's not. It's not okay if he says it about anybody. What he said was was crude. And um, he's trying to excuse it and offer excuses for it. There really are none. Um, and by that, I'm saying he's he's, you know, He's apologized. He did a heartfelt apology on the floor of the Senate, but he also went back and said to the media that, you know, he was it was just a, you know, colleagues talking, yeah, whatever. Fox News dropping Bill O'Reilly going to replace the show with um I'm guessing Tucker Carlson will move to 8. The 5 will move to 9. Eric Bowling, I've been told, is staying at 5 o'clock. He'll keep he'll do a show of his own and and he'll be replaced by Jesse Waters who was a regular part of the 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 O'Reilly factor. So uh we'll see. I'm I'm guessing though that the 5 at 9 will be very successful although it'll it stinks for me cuz I I just generally don't stay up that late. Harvard study shows what we've been saying for well, I've been talking about the the mathematical certainties of what happens when you artificially increase wages. When you mandate wage increases outside of the marketplace, it destroys the very people you claim to help. A Harvard study has just shown just that. Uh, minimum wages close restaurants. Just is what it is. There's no surprise there to me. It's just interesting that Harvard has come out with a study that says what we've been saying and know. Those of you in business, you know this. You can't artificially raise wages. It impacts the bottom line far more dramatically than just the wage itself. When we come back, we will be joined by Eric Weinmeier. NoBarriersUSA.org, the book, No Barriers. Next on The Morning Show with Preston Scott. iHeartRadio is the easy-to-use app for music and radio. Download the free iHeartRadio app today. Eleven minutes past the hour. Third hour of the morning show with Preston Scott. Wherever you are listening, however you are listening, whether it's on terrestrial radio or iHeartRadio around the country. Thanks very much for making us part of your morning. We appreciate it. I met Eric Weinmeyer on the program back a month or so ago. Got a copy of the book No Barriers and uh, had a short visit with him. And we decided at that time we were going to hook back up and talk some more uh, specifically about an organization we'll tell you about in just a second. But, Eric, welcome back to the program. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. Uh, as a point of setup here, let's just go ahead and break the news. Eric, is, uh, you've summited Mount Everest. You've also uh, climbed the seven summits uh, on each of the continents. Uh, you kayak down the Grand Canyon. And, oh, by the way, you 
you're blind. You don't have the use of your eyes. Um, just to kind of give some perspective to this, for our listeners that might have missed the first visit, why the decision to go the route of conquering these types of challenges uh, as opposed to doing something else with your life when you lost your sight? Well, you know, it's not like anyone asks for bad things to happen to them. You know, it's not like, you know, I asked to go blind or anything, or that's a good thing. But when these things happen to you, they make you search, you know. And so I couldn't play baseball anymore. I couldn't play basketball anymore. So now I'm thinking, what do I do? And I discovered rock climbing. Uh, They were taking a group of blind kids out rock climbing, uh, this organization. I said, I don't know anything about that. That sounds crazy, but I'll try it. And it changed the course of my life. 16 years later, I was, uh, I was standing on top of Everest. So yeah, it's, uh, it was my say yes policy <laughs> to everything that might be a good opportunity for me. I've got to ask, when you hit that moment on the top of Mount Everest, can you, I, I got to believe you, you vividly remember what that was like, what that feeling was like. How could you describe it to us? Well, you know, so people talk about conquering mountains, and like when you're a little puny human being standing at 29,000 feet on an island the size of a single car garage in the sky, uh, you don't feel very, you know, uh, strong. You feel fragile. You know, you feel like, wow, I'm a long, I'm a long way from from uh, comfort and warmth and you know, food and water and all the things that human beings need. So, yeah, it's a sort of beautiful moment. It's a sacred place, but then you and then you head down. You you take your photos, and then you you got to start the long descent, which 90% of accidents happen on the way down. So you got to keep your guard up as you head down. And for me, being blind, it was, you know, I could listen. Uh, some blind people use sound vibrations. They, they you listen to those sound vibrations moving out through space and maybe bouncing off of objects and coming back at you and you can get some information that way but you know on Everest summit <laughs> there's nothing to bounce off of so there's just this infinite sound of of sky it was really powerful almost like you've got swallowed by it Eric but yet you describe kayaking down the Grand Canyon as being a greater challenge yeah, see, in climbing, you can stop and regroup, and it's very slow and methodical. But in kayaking a river blind, listening to somebody behind me yelling out directions via this high-tech radio system and feeling what's under my boat and getting hammered by waves and rocks and holes, you know, these big washing machines that grab your boat and suck you down, it's just complete chaos, and there's no brakes. So a lot of times I'm getting knocked over and I don't have any reaction. I'm underwater. I'm trying to roll up using my combat roll. I roll up, but maybe now I'm facing left or right or up river and I got to orient myself. And it was, it was really crazy. It was uh, a lot about letting go, like affecting what you can, but then sort of letting go and riding this massive storm of energy uh, and, and being okay with that. That was hard for me. To learn. Eric, stand by. Eric Weinmeyer with me this morning. The book, No Barriers, A Blind Man's Journey to Kayak the Grand Canyon. But what this led to all of this is an organization called NoBarriersUSA.org. When we come back, we'll take the next segment and we'll focus on that. So if you want to get ahead of us a little bit, visit the website right now, NoBarriersUSA.org. Eric Weinmeyer, my guest on The Morning Show with Preston Scott.
Sensei of Sensibility. The Morning Show with Preston Scott on News Radio 100.7 WFLA. So good to have you with us this morning. David Allen over there, Ryan Carter has the morning off. It's uh, the morning show. I'm Preston Scott, joined by Eric Weinmeyer. The book is No Barriers, Blind Man's Journey to Kayak the Grand Canyon, but the organization is what I want to focus on, NoBarriersUSA.org. Eric, what gave birth to this? Well, it was after Everest uh, that I got a call from a hero of mine, and his name is Mark Wellman. He was he was the first paraplegic to climb El Capitan. That's out in Yosemite. It's a 3,000-foot granite monolith face. And he basically did it by doing pull-ups up the rock face, you know, the special system that he invented, 7,000 pull-ups in eight days. And he invited me on a climb, and uh, we we're going to do this rock climb in the desert. And he said, I have a third partner that's going to join us. And he's got a pretty interesting story, too. His name's Hugh Herr. Hugh is a double-leg amputee, and he invented, he created, he built his own legs after he lost his, his legs to an accident. Um, he had these little tiny legs with little feet uh, that he built that he could wedge into cracks that no human foot could even stand up on. And so the three of us climbed this tower together, and it was like we're sort of like uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, <laughs> it was really amazing. It changed my life because I thought, okay, these guys, like they, 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 how do they do it? How, how do they break through the barriers in their life? What is that? light inside them that they you know they they're able to tap into and is that exportable to others you know can we help others so many people are like sitting on the sidelines and they're just in these dark places they dream big and then they go off and they get shattered or maybe just stuck or derailed and how do you get that light burning again blazing into the world and so uh, it began sort of a a mission of mostly questions trying to figure out how to help people do that and it's grown into this uh, movement and organization called No Barriers. So how does it express itself? I mean, what are the different avenues through which No Barriers works? Yeah. Well, we we divide challenge into lots of uh, – it's an expansive definition of challenge because challenges aren't just like dis- disabled people like me who can't see or can't people can't walk or – uh, you know, just physical disabilities. A lot of the, invis- the uh, disabilities in the world are invisible. You know, fear and anxiety and um, just all the things that we struggle with in our daily lives. And so we bring lots of uh, people into our movement. And so it's a pretty diverse kind of definition of challenge. Um, So we might have parents struggling with families, you know, running their families. And we might have CEOs and we might have cancer survivors and people struggling with obesity and people with physical disabilities all in this one community. And, um, what, you know, we, we work with probably 5,000 people a year. Um, the, the soldiers that we work with, with PTSD and uh, different kinds of challenges, what we do is we bring them out on these big adventures. It's kind of an outward-bound model, um, taking them out into the mountains. And along the way, we talk about this no-barriers um, curriculum, these message of how you get back into life. And then uh, at the end of the program, after we've summited that mountain, they take a no barriers pledge. And uh, we had just one guy recently who took a pledge uh, to get off of painkillers 
that were killing it, you know, just hurting his life so bad. And uh, after our program, he checked himself in, and he's addiction-free now. So it's really proud to be able to sort of be just a catalyst for change in people's lives. Eric Weinmeyer, my guest for another couple minutes here. Eric, we are in our country uh, moving in the direction of trying to insulate children and young people from failing. I'm curious, yeah. isn't failing part of the odyssey, the journey to success? Yeah, and hard work, too. I have a friend who's a CEO. I've spoken to his company many times, and he's like, hey, you know, I was a farmer, and once you bail hay for, like, you know, a week, you know, 18-hour days, uh, you know, doing anything else in your life is not that hard. And so, yeah, it's something that uh, we need to think about as parents, you know, when we insulate our kids, you know. And obviously, I get it. You know, I have two kids, and you want to you want to protect them. You want to you want to lock them in a little cage and just you know keep them safe. And and that's not the way it works. You know, that's not the way people grow. These you know these failures happen and. And there's an energy around those things. And so you have to sort of figure out in life how to grab hold of that storm of energy and, and harness it and ride it forward like a storm. And it can bring you to amazing places. It can lead you to great discoveries. But there is a fundamental decision to have courage to take that ride along that storm. And, uh, and yeah, I, I think we, uh, we, we need to kind of get back to that. Eric, I, I really appreciate spending some time with you, and I appreciate you making time for uh, all the listeners. And, and best of success to you. I, I thank you. Thank you very much. Eric Weinmeyer, my guest. And the book is No Barriers. The organization, No Barriers, the website, that's where I really want to direct you, nobarriersusa.org. If you want to learn more, if you want to take the pledge, check it out online right now. 27 minutes past the hour. Wanna win a thousand bucks? You're shot in less than 30 minutes on WFLA. Thirty-five minutes past the hour of the morning show with Preston Scott. Morning. Thanks very much for joining us. Final half hour of today's edition of the show. We go to national correspondent frequently covering the foreign desk, Bill Zimfer. Bill, welcome back to the show. How are you? My pleasure, Preston. Good to be with you. Bill, uh, the president, some people describe them as having problems uh, foreign-wise uh, with regard to foreign you know, uh, issues. Some say he's cleaning up messes that have gone untended for the last eight years. How do we, wh- how do we break down what he's dealing with right now? Because there seem to be a lot of fronts. There, uh, oh my goodness! How much time do you have? I right. Mean, can we take it. Can we take it to the top of the hour? Uh, because there are a, a ton of issues that he's facing right now. And yes, uh, the, the truth is that a lot of these have been going on for years and years and years through previous administrations, and have kind of been swept to the back and 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 not taken care of. Now. The question remains, are we to be the world's housekeeper, going in and clean up things here and there? Uh, but uh, Donald Trump certainly has some on the table right now. Uh, you know, we had uh, this all-star. You know what, Preston, I say, if this was a, if, if this was a rock group on tour, this would be called the, the World Tension Tour. 
because, number one, we're launching some missiles in Syria. Then we go over and drop a Moab a week later in Afghanistan. Then things bubble up in North Korea, so our attention's turned there. Somehow, we have lost focus on ISIS, which uh, was going to be number one priority to defeat ISIS. That is still there. Meanwhile, you've got things down in South America starting to uh, to, to go crazy in Venezuela. Uh, you've got Iran now coming back to the front after comments yesterday by Rex Tillerson. There certainly are a lot of things that have to be addressed here, and you've got to get to a point where you have to prioritize. And I think that's why some things get swept to the back. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to handle all of these things effectively. You've got to prioritize. Some would say the action in Syria followed by the action in Afghanistan was, in fact, uh, Afghanistan was a direct uh, assault on ISIS, Syria more of a, uh, uh, an implied attack on ISIS, suggesting yep. this administration has a very different resolve than the previous one. Yeah, I think, well, they're certainly taking a different approach, that's for sure. And it has it sent it certainly sent a signal, didn't it? A week apart, we launched 60 cruise missiles and then dropped the biggest bomb we have. Uh, it, it sent a signal, and, uh, and certainly, hopefully, that message gets through to whoever it had to get through to, and it'll help down the road here a little bit. But we're being tested by that right now, by North Korea. So, uh, and they continue to rattle over there. Their state media released a statement saying on Wednesday that there could be what they called a super-mighty preemptive strike that would leave the U.S. in ashes. So they are not going away, and they are almost now like the eight-year-old who's over there saying, pay attention to me, pay attention to me, uh, and they're going to get attention. Bill Zimfer with us uh, for just a couple more moments. Bill, if you look at what's going on in, in terms of foreign issues, it would seem the president has scored some small victories because he's getting generally bipartisan support with how he's handling most of this stuff, even if he's gaining some criticism for not having a, a long-range overarching policy. Yeah. In the short term, he's actually getting some wins, isn't he? I think so. I mean, he has the only thing that I've heard uh, uh, negative uh, in this whole series of events so far has been that uh, when he launched missiles in Syria, he didn't go to Congress first. Uh, other than that, I mean, people are kind of uniting behind him now. Now, you talked about maybe a, an overall strategic plan here. His strategic plan has been unpredictability. Uh, you got to wonder, though, how far that goes. It would seem as though that um, that that this particular president, though, has established that he's not going to necessarily put his finger up in the air and see which way the political winds are blowing. Um, and and I guess, you know, from a certain standpoint, there's some measure of, uh, of I, I guess, the unpredictability that you mentioned can be an asset. In, in some cases, absolutely. But uh, my question is, is that going to be your policy for the rest of uh, for the rest of your term? Unpredictability, uh, that can be good or it can go against you. Bill, always good to visit with you. Thanks for the time, sir. Yes, Preston. Thank you. It's 40 minutes past the hour. It's the morning show with Preston Scott. The big stories in the press box next. Someone has to say it. The morning show with Preston Scott. On News Radio 100.7 WFLA. Don't know if he'll join us in studio or on the phone, but tomorrow, Ambassador Dennis Ross will join us on the program. He's speaking tonight at the Florida State University College of Law. And uh, our friend Mark Schlackman is always kind enough to make guests available. 
and uh, Ambassador Ross has agreed to come on the program tomorrow. Um, he's been in the George H.W. Bush administrations, in the Bill Clinton administration, and he served as one year as a, a Middle East, I, I want to say specialized Middle East advisor to then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And so certainly the resume is uh, robust, and we'll talk to him about specifically Middle East policy. He's written a book on the subject, and we'll get to all of that tomorrow as well as uh, Stupid Criminal Stories, your email, and What's to Be Friday. So a, a really fun Friday program awaits us. Interesting guest tomorrow on the program. Um, big stories in the press box. I, I want to defer back, though, to real quickly, Donald Trump, foreign domestic issues. I want to circle back. Ronald Reagan's certainly made mistakes as president. I, I do not hold him up as, you know, he's, he was not a perfect man. No one is. Um, there were mistakes. Iran-Contra was a was a mistake, um, and he would agree to that. He would agree that uh, amnesty for illegals in the country was a mistake. However, if you if you step back and look, one of the greatest accomplishments was the tearing down of the Berlin Wall. Wouldn't you agree? Without question. And how did that happen? It happened through strength. It just, it happened through strength. The United States was in a strong fiscal position. They were strong with domestic defense. Our military, strong. Mr. Gorbachev teared down this wall, and he did. That happens when you are in a position of strength and you're responsible with that strength. And I think that's where I I part from people that think that the United States... I'm not suggesting the United States ought to be the policeman of the world. I, I, I don't agree with that. I think that we have to be selective. I also think we have a moral responsibility to do what we can, when we can, where we can, when it's appropriate. I, I don't think you stand by and, and let the Holocaust happen. I, I don't think you stand by and let Syrians get gassed by their own government. I just don't. Um, it'd be great if you had help. If you don't, you don't. But um, But at any rate, the strengthening of our nation, you, you know, if you look at the list of nations that we are now kind of, okay, Iran, Russia, Syria, Afghanistan, North Korea, um, is there anything new in any of that? Or are these, in fact, issues that have been swept to the side by, you know, Bill was, I think, polite saying the previous administrations. I won't be. The previous administration. Um, Obama ignored it. Bush, for good reason, was focused on one thing, the attacks after 9-11 and the consequences, you know, finding the bad guys wherever they ended up. Although you could say, Saudi Arabia, hello? And those are fair questions. Big stories in the press box. Florida State Senator apologizing for racial slurs, Frank Artilles. Uh, don't know if that's going to be enough. Uh, he may be pressured so much by this to have to have to leave office. He's been defiant on that front so far. What he said was indefensible, and it's and it's wrong. And we have to be better than that. I just I'm I'm bugged by the hypocrisy that some are approaching this situation with. Just it stands on its own. It's abhorrent. It's bad. 
don't complicate things by issuing statements from the uh, Black Legislative Caucus of Florida. Just stop. Stop with the divisiveness, okay? Because the truth of the matter is, here's where the hypocrisy lies. Most of those guys probably use the same language in their groups. Okay? It doesn't excuse it. It's, it's, it's inexcusable. Bill O'Reilly out at Fox. Harvard study shows the minimum wage increases forced by the government down is killing the restaurant industry. And Berkeley's about to blow up. Ann Coulter said she's showing up and speaking regardless of what the administration says at Berkeley. Oh, boy. 46 minutes past the hour. It's the morning show. Got it. $1,000. I'm talking about big money. Next on News Radio 100.7 WFLA. Well, you can tell Ryan's gone now. One mistake. My ending theme music, my relax, kick back, and... I can't find it. <laughs> and I'm the one that put it up here. <laughs> David Allen on the other side of the console today. Fine. Enjoying it, but not enjoying it. It's At this moment, not enjoying it. Ryan Carter will be back tomorrow. What a um, look. Huh? I didn't deserve that look. I just looked I'm at you. I a perfect show today. Perfect. Well, you, you did. <laughs> there goes my Christmas present. Uh, how happy are teens in the U.S. compared to their peers around the world? We turn to none other than our own Simon Owen. Researchers surveying more than half a million teenagers around the world, asking them to rate their satisfaction with life on a scale of 1 to 10. The average mark for American teenagers, 7.4. That's roughly in line with other rich countries, although teenagers in some places rated higher. In Mexico, 8.2 out of 10. And the figure was in the high sevens in the Netherlands, Iceland and Finland. American students also reporting higher than average levels of anxiety over tests, bullying or feeling like they don't belong at school. The study carried out by the Paris-based intergovernmental group, the OECD. In London, Simon Owen, Fox News. Now, all of those issues really are not new. Those are issues, you know, feeling out of place, struggling with testing. None of that is new to this generation. It's just not. But And this is the perfect music to use, by the way. Thank you. I think a more important question is, and the question helps make the distinction, the difference between being happy and being joyful. Joy can't be taken from you. Happiness is superficial based on external events. It's surface level. Joy, I think, is that deep abiding sense of wellness that just sort of reminds your heart and soul that everything's going to be okay. So my question for you is not so much are you happy, but do you have joy? How about that for a deep ending of the radio program? Time for the Morning Show 180. Look back at the radio program in 180 seconds or less. We started with a uh, journey down this day in history. And I'm going to do this more often. I'm going I'm to end with a historical nugget that we started with. And I think the most significant thing 
would be that it was on this day in 1912, since we were just talking about uh, uh, baseball movies off air. Fenway Park, the home of the Boston Red Sox, opened up in 1912, an integral part of the movie Field of Dreams. What happened at Fenway Park? we were talking about, yes. Yeah. Two ball parks I would love to go to, Fenway and Wrigley. Yeah, I've never been to either. Nor have I. Yeah. Um, Driven by a couple of great ballparks in the years. But yeah. Uh, Frank Artilles, Florida State Senator. He survived the storm created by his own mouth. You know, what comes out of your mouth reveals what's in your heart. That's all I'll say. Bill O'Reilly out at Fox. They're going to shuffle the lineup. It seems as though, I'm not certain about all of this, but it seems as though Tucker Carlson's going to move to 8 o'clock where O'Reilly was, and the 5 will now be at 9. Eric Bowling staying behind. He'll do his program at 5, some new show, and then the rest of them plus Jesse Waters. Jesse Waters needs a gig because he was on Bill O'Reilly. And so um, Jesse Waters will replace Eric Bowling on the five. That'd be interesting. He and Greg Gutfeld together. Both are a little snarky. I like them. I like both of them. That'll be fun. Harvard study shows that uh, restaurants affected by the forced increase of minimum wage close more quickly, more readily, more often. It's the direct cause and effect of government intervention. The idea was to help these workers. They're out jobs now because restaurants are closing. Berkeley. Pay attention to Berkeley, my friends. Berkeley is a disaster. They've canceled the speech by Ann Coulter. Ann says, forget it. I'm coming anyway. Oof. We'll follow that. Tomorrow, we'll do it all over again. I'll try not to be so bad. Have a great day. Thanks for listening.